0: This is Commission Vice President Toshiko Hasegawa convening this special meeting of June 13, 2023. The time is 9.04 a.m. We are meeting in person today at the Port of Seattle headquarters building in the Commission Chambers. The purpose of the meeting is to hold a study session regarding aviation environmental issues. Present with me today are Commissioners Calkins, Feleman, and online for the first 30 minutes. uh, Commissioner Mohamed, she'll be joining us in person in a little bit. Commissioner Cho is absent and excused from the meeting. This session is being recorded and broadcasted by Seattle College's cable television and is available on the port's website. The study session is open to the public, however, as it is a working session for the commission, there's no public comment or action um, today. The next public comment period will occur at our regular business meeting later this afternoon at 12 o'clock p.m. So at this time, I'm going to hand it over to Executive Director Steve Metrick to open the session, and the meeting's expected to last about two hours, so we'll be mindful of providing time to get through the full presentation. to you, Steve?
1: Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Commissioner. Uh, commissioners, good morning and thank you for convening today's aviation environmental study session as you know in alignment with with our sustainability objectives the port has set ambitious goals for encouraging aircraft emission reductions by our partners including supporting voluntary measures by airlines as well as advocating for policies at the state and federal level that incentivize and subsidize the transition to sustainable aviation fuels full utilization of saf by airlines is a global is a global opportunity that policymakers and industry leaders are leaning into more and more than ever. But there are still significant challenges to achieving this goal, from feedstock availability to refining capacity to costs. However, we remain committed, and I'm proud of the work that you commissioners, port staff, and our partners have played over the last years to support this important transition, and I remain optimistic. We have also begun to see exciting announcements from the private sector about investments that will bring SAF production to Washington State. Today's study session will focus on the research and advocacy that the port has engaged in on this topic, as well as our thoughts on next steps for our continuing efforts. And I look forward to hearing your, your feedback, your questions, and your suggestions. So with that, I'm gonna go hand it over to Sandra Kilroy, our Senior Director of, of Engineering, or not, <laughs> Environment and Sustainability.
2: Great. Thank you. Thank you, Executive Director Metric, and good morning, Commissioners. The port uh, has set clear goals for reducing our greenhouse gas emissions, and these goals are both for ourselves and for our business partners. These goals drive our actions to engage in and solve the very complex problem of how to decarbonize our aviation industry. Today, we will focus in on the role of sustainable aviation fuel, and you'll hear us refer to that as SAF um, throughout uh, today's presentation. The port team and our guest speakers will discuss our past, our current, and our future efforts to support the production and use of SAF. Bringing SAF to scale for use here and globally is no easy task, but the port has leaned in to lend our leadership, our expertise, our passion, determination, and our voice to supporting an industry transformation. I want to thank Managing Director Lance Little and the Aviation Directors for their continued support of our collective work on this issue, and thank the Commission and Executive Director Metric for your strong leadership. Being the greenest port in North America takes collective vision and action and we are at a unique time to make a difference and to drive change, especially in this area of sustainable aviation fuel. Uh, I want to thank the staff for their time to prepare for today's session. My hope is that you will leave today with a greater awareness of where we're at with sustainable aviation fuel and a clear understanding of our port strategy. Uh, we look forward to hearing your questions, your insights, your feedback to further inform and refine the strategy moving forward. We do have a, uh, a lot of uh, information for you today. I think you'll find it uh, hopefully fascinating. Um, we I am going to ask uh, if possible that you hold. Questions on a slide-by-slide basis. We have uh, built in lots of uh, intentional breaks for Q um, and A after a sets of slides. Um, clearly, if you have a clarifying question on on a slide, uh, you know, uh, please do. But we're we'd like to get through packets of information um, before opening it up to, to QA. Q and A. That would be our request. Uh, so thank you uh, for. Uh, Uh, Your time today, I'd like to uh, now pass it to Sarah Cox, who is our Director of Aviation, Environment, and Sustainability, and she will kick off the presentation.
3: Great. Thank you. Good morning, Commissioners and Executive Director Metric. As Sandy noted, I'm Sarah Cox, the Director of Environment and Sustainability at the airport. Next slide, please. And thank you for the opportunity for both the port team and our external technical experts to present to you today. We'll be providing a level set on sustainable aviation fuel industries, current production levels, the forecast, and how much growth is needed to reach our carbon reduction goals. Then we will discuss the port's role and strategy in bringing SAF to SeaTac Airport. And lastly, there will be a focus on current Uh, and future state and federal policy areas and the role U.S. commissioners can continue to contribute in policy change that promotes SAF manufacturing and distribution. Next slide, please. So for today, we will be providing an overview of the port's goals, uh, the carbon emissions, and the role of SAF. We'll then provide a SAF refresher on feedstock and productions, because there's been a lot of innovation and movement in this area, a review of the port's role and our SAF strategic plan, the state and federal policy update, as well as next steps and discussion. And as Sandy noted, we will have breaks for questions throughout the presentation. Next slide, please. Uh, Next, Uh, let's see, did we go one too many? There we go, thank you. And as you're aware, our mission and center agenda goals include supporting economic development in an environmentally responsible manner. As you will see further into the presentation, our SAF strategy plan integrates both of these goals into our operations. Next slide, please. And the Century Agenda Goal 4, to be the greenest port in North America, includes an objective to reduce Scope 3 emissions by 50% in 2030 and carbon neutral by 2050. And in 2017, the Commission approved a SAF motion specifying the SAF targets to help achieve our Scope 3 goals. And I will now introduce Stephanie Mine, our Climate Program Manager, who will provide more specifics on SAF usage, usage, emissions at SEA, and our strategic plan to bring SAF to SEA. Thank you.
4: Thank you, Sarah. Um, Next slide. So um, to really put all of the goals that Sarah just described that we have for both sustainable aviation fuel and um, our scope three emissions in perspective, I wanted to provide this this. Um, overview of the the Scope 3 emissions at um, Seattle Airport. Um, Just to be clear, Scope 3 emissions are those emissions that we have no ownership or control over, but occur on our our properties. And so for the um, emission inventory that you see here, these include um, sources like ground transportation emissions, those Um, vehicles coming to and from the airport to use our facility, and then also any aircraft-related emissions. And these are just those emissions that occur in the landing, takeoff, and ground-based cycle. But what you can see here is when you stack those together, um, they are um, very much dependent on aircraft um, operations, which is the orange line at the top, that as you see aircraft operations rise, so too do the Scope 3 emissions. Um, And in order to meet that 50% by uh, 2030 goal that we have, which is the red line, you can see that we need significant reduction in aircraft emissions in order to meet those goals. Next slide. Another way to put that in perspective is to look at all of the Jet A that is dispensed by the airlines at our airport. And you can see that very same trend here. Um, I've actually included the sort of COVID era and the post COVID recovery um, in in this um, this this illustration, and what you can see is this is in hundreds of millions of gallons. Um, so you know, at the peak in 2019, we used um, almost close to 700 million gallons at this airport. <laughs> make sure everyone's muted online. Um, and then um, as you can see, the recovery is, is happening pretty quickly. And in fact, Memorial Day weekend, I don't know if you heard the news, but um, passenger levels were reaching pre-COVID numbers. So we really do see that the amount of Jet A that airlines are using at our airport is, is um, showing an increase. And that basically that trend is, is be- coming back on track. Next slide. So, what does this mean for how we are really, you know, how the industry is tackling those emissions and what strategies do we need to, to reduce, um, reduce the emissions and meet, meet the goals? This looks um, kind of complicated and, and messy, but I'll just sort of describe the major categories of this graph. This is the um, illustration of a, what we call a wedge diagram that, that was um, produced by the FAA um, to show how the Biden administration would reach its net zero by 2050 goals. And what you see is that um, there was that sort of dip um, from, the, from the COVID era, but you can see that the projections for the increase in emissions is, is climbing on up. And the, the different colors represent the different types of strategies that, that would be required to meet those, those emission reductions. And you can see the sort of red colored ones um, rely on efficiency um, of the aircraft itself, renewing the, the fleet and changing out the engines. But, um, and then you see a small wedge in blue of really sort of the new technologies that might be out there, such as electric or hydrogen, that um, can replace maybe some of the short-range flights longer into the future. But what you see dominated by green is really strategies that relate to sustainable aviation fuel. We are still reliant very much on a liquid um, energy dense hydrocarbon fuels because of the, the legacy fleets and the distances that we're traveling. So the only um, strategy that we really, you know, we, we know we can rely on to, to meet those goals is sustainable aviation fuel. So um, today, what we really hope to do is, you know, having set that um, that this outlook, um, we have a great need for SAF, and we need a lot of it, and we need it soon. So um, today's focus is really to, to explore that topic and to talk about how much we have and how much we need um, moving into the future. So, um What we'd like to do next is really, we know that not all of the Commission members had the benefit of, of previous SAF um, study sessions. So we wanted to do a bit of level setting on what SAF is, what it's made from, what its benefits are um, for, for everyone's benefit and to, to have some level setting. Um, and so to do that, um, we've invited CAFI. They're the Commercial Aviation Alternative Fuels Initiative. They're a membership-based organization that includes airlines, um, SAF producers, and other partners. And we've invited them to, to provide that overview. And Chris Tyndall is the Assistant Director and uh, Business Team Lead of CAFI. That's how their acronym. Um, and was previously the Director for Operational Energy um, underneath the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Navy for Energy. So I'd like to now invite Chris.
5: Thank you very much, uh, Stephanie. I really do appreciate uh, um, being a part of this and um, to the uh, to the commissioners, to Executive Director Metric, and Director Kilroy and Director Cox. Uh, Thank you very much for allowing me to be here and to be a part of of this overall discussion. Uh, Next slide, please, Michelle. Uh, So just wanted to highlight this picture uh, itself. Um, Go back one, please. Just wanted to point out that uh, this is a picture taken in March of 2016. United Airlines um, started the continuous operation or or consumption of sustainable aviation fuel at uh, Los Angeles Airport, and that's been going on uh, ever since. Uh, Each airport, as you know, uh, does not have a United tank and an American Airlines tank, Delta tank. Uh, They are all uh, sort of put in there together, and so each individual airline uh, when they're refueling at LAX, we'll get some molecules of sustainable aviation fuel, uh, even though United is the only one who can really claim it because they're the ones who, who actually paid for it. Uh, next slide, please. So, I want to give you a little bit of an update on, uh, on CAFI. Um, as, uh, as Stephanie pointed out, we are the Commercial Aviation Alternative Fuels Initiative. We're a public private partnership and we have four major sponsors. Uh, They're there, uh, the Aerospace Industries Association, Federal Aviation Administration, the Airports Council International, and the Airlines for America. So we are there to help serve uh, the whole aviation industry. Uh, And even though commercial aviation is, is is in our name, we are also helping out with business aviation also. Um, so we are there. Uh, we we have about 1,800 plus or minus uh, members in our in our membership, and they range all the way from feedstock providers all the way to the uh, to the airlines, and so we and, and every and every uh, entity in between that. Uh, so we're trying to help uh, the overall aviation industry to uh, for the development and deployment of sustainable aviation fuel. Uh, across the board. Uh, Next slide, please. So, uh, just to give you a little bit of a, uh, 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 I guess, a definition uh, described for sustainable aviation fuel, sometimes we'll refer to it as biojet, aviation biofuel, or alternative aviation fuel. There's, and there's a few others that may be out there, but we'll mainly be talking about SAF. Um, but all of those uh, are inclusive there. So with this particular SAF, all the same properties, the chemical properties uh, of sustainable aviation fuel um, is the same as as Jet A. There's no changes needed for any infrastructure. Uh, they can go into the same same fuel tank, and uh, along with fossil fuel, and that is not a not a problem at all. The sustainable part. Is that instead of the uh, the feedstocks coming from a, a hole in the ground uh, crude oil we're actually getting it from things like municipal solid waste or wood waste or woody biomass um, and, uh, and and even waste cooking oils uh, used cooking oils those are all uh, potential feedstocks that can be put into different pathways and those pathways are both uh, biochemical and thermochemical processes that are using uh, basically basically that, uh, that that hydrogen and carbon synthesized into an an actual jet fuel. Um, next slide, please. So one of the uh, one of the pathways that it, that is being developed is one that's called power to liquids, and uh, many people are have been talking about it uh there's a lot of work in uh in europe that is working on the uh, the power to liquids um they they all need all of this all SAFs need a source of carbon and hydrogen that carbon may be coming as i mentioned from the feedstocks like the like the woody biomass Um, and in some cases there are some some companies that are trying to get it out of the air and i'll go over that in uh, in a second um but the feedstocks that, that we were mentioning, though, the used cooking oil and, the, and a woody waste and a woody biomass, there are some limits to that, especially when we're talking about used cooking oils. Uh, a lot of that's going into biodiesel and uh, not necessarily into sustainable aviation fuel. Um, but by, by some of these companies that are working on PTL, uh, they're actually able to, to get that carbon from, the, from carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Um, those processes are, are being developed. One of those is uh, is a company uh, that's working on that is Twelve, and I know that they are they are uh, uh, somewhat headquartered in the uh, in the Pacific Northwest as well. Uh, and so that's very encouraging. Uh, we have talked with the uh, the CEO there, uh, along with our development team, and are helping them uh, you know across the board. Um, and with with Cafe, the nice thing about it is we don't pick winners. We're trying to, uh, to, to develop it and, uh, and, and create as many industry uh, companies that we can that are, that are actually producing the sustainable aviation fuel. Um, with these, with these uh, PTL companies, though, they do need uh, an awful lot of power, um, especially when you're talking about getting the hydrogen. And some of the hydrogen right now is coming from a, a process called uh, electrolysis, and that's where you're basically electrolyzing water to turn it into the hydrogen and the oxygen. That's the H2O that comes out of that. Um, and so from that hydrogen then, um, you know, is, is where we then take that and put it, put it into to make that synthetic hydrocarbon. Um, and again, it does, does require an awful lot of power. And that's why a lot of these companies are also working on renewable energy sources. Solar wind, solar and wind are two of the uh, two of the biggest ones that uh, that people have really started to tap into. Um, so this is just one one of the pathways that that is being developed currently. Right now we have seven different uh, pathways annexes that are uh, that are ways to to make SAF. Uh, next slide, please. So some of those. Um, some of those feedstocks, I wanted to sort of highlight for you uh, some of the p- production potentials that, that come out of that. Um, and, and certainly, yes, there are some limitations. Um, municipal solid waste; any major uh, any major city will certainly have a lot of landfills, um, and so you can use that municipal solid waste. Uh, problem with that, obviously, is that you still have to take out um, all of the uh, all the metals. You have to take out any uh, recyclables uh, as well in order to get to that uh, carbonaceous type of materials that you're really wanting. Um, forestry waste re- residues, wood processing waste, um, all of those you know, are mainly in that, that wood industry. Uh, in some cases, some people are, are linked in with uh, some of the sawmills uh, to actually use the sawdust and use that for, for the feedstocks. Um, agri- agricultural waste, uh, corn stover, and sugarcane bagasse; uh, those are the, the remnants from that, those two industries. Uh, you can certainly use that as well too, uh, but again, there are limitations to that. Uh, and then waste food production oils; that's the used cooking oils we talked about. Uh, industrial off gases. There's one company that's able able to take uh, carbon monoxide from a from a steel plant and uh, use that in order to turn that into sustainable aviation fuel, which is nice. Um, and then the, the, the bottom one there, the oil and cellulosic crops, there's a lot of uh, different types of um, purpose-grown oil feedstocks, like Camelina, um, uh, Carinata, uh, Jatropha, uh, Pongamia. All of those are, are actually uh, feedstocks that come from purpose-grown uh, plants, basically. Uh, but, again, are, those are some limitations, too. And then the bottom one, obviously, we already talked about the power to liquids. Um, there's plenty of CO2 that's in the atmosphere that we can, that we can harness. Um, and and, we, and by, by doing that, uh, it doesn't necessarily open it up, but uh, we, there are certainly some limitations, like I mentioned, with, um, with the power that's needed for that as well. Uh, next slide,
2: please. Chris, uh, can I ask you to pause, just pause there before we move on to consumption and production? Uh, I would want to pause and see if the commissioners have any uh, questions on uh, the previous uh, set of slides.
0: Commissioner Calkins.
6: uh, Does this chart that we're looking at here, um, it doesn't appear to uh, factor in the costs of each of these different sources. So are we, I I recall a couple of years ago as we were talking about woody biomass that one of the biggest challenges is it's dispersed over the entirety of the Pacific Northwest. How do we get it to a central processing point? And and in doing so we're likely gonna undo all of the carbon benefits we'd receive from it because we'd be trucking it in um, carbon powered trucks. So is that factored into these resource, potential resources?
5: Uh, no, sir. These are these are just uh, the the number of uh, millions of tons metric tons that are available. Uh, so the cost is not uh, fed into this particular thing. This is just what may be out there on the uh, on the forest floor or in the uh, uh, in a farm the farm floor. Um, so those are those are just the what's available that may be out there.
4: And, and can you For tell, this
5: particular slide,
4: and, and we do have a upcoming um, slides about the cost and the relative costs related to these different feedstocks. Um, so, stay tuned. We have we have more on cost <laughs> coming.
6: Great. And then, um, if we add up all of these red bars, how how many gallons roughly would that be equivalent to? If we're thinking about 26 billion gallons is the, I think you said the domestic need, what is this equivalent to roughly?
5: Um, well, it, it does depend. Uh, I, I, I don't have an answer for you, uh, sir, but I can we, can. we can certainly do a rough order of magnitude, uh, uh, I guess. Uh, depend, it depends also on the, uh, the actual pathway that you're using. Uh, some of the pathways may use more of the feedstock than, than others, uh, but they're using that may, may, maybe because the CAPEX for that particular plant may be lower than, uh, than, than another one. Um, so, so I can't really uh, answer that directly, uh, but certainly we can we can find out uh, what that would uh, what that would entail. I do think though that the the amount uh, the USDA and DOE did a um, did a, a study the billion ton study, and from that they were able to determine exactly uh, how much that is out there. Uh, I do feel. That we we do have enough of those that are in the red bars to get to 26 billion gallons. Um, and to your point, though, about aggregating, for instance, uh, woody biomass, uh, that certainly is a problem. Um, but in in an upcoming slide, uh, I'll show you that. Um, yeah, we wanna we wanna put the biorefinery close to where the feedstocks are, and the reason for that, it's just easier to get. Um, to, to pump liquid fuel than it is to like you say truck uh, all of that woody woody biomass coming from the forest floor or wherever um but when you also think about it uh from the from the standpoint of uh carbon reductions because uh those trees have actually taken carbon out of the air in their in their uh their lifespan um then that feedstock already has a lot of A lot of carbon in it so that when we do convert it into sustainable aviation fuel uh, sometimes we get you know anywhere from maybe 50 to 80 percent less carbon reduction across the whole life cycle which would include transporting those logs and and timber to an actual biorefiner
6: thank you
0: commissioner fellman
7: Uh, Following on that point, obviously municipal solid waste is nearby a lot of places, so it it certainly has some appeal to that and look forward to the King County study. But I guess I want to go back to the more of the fundamentals that uh, Stephanie brought up with regards to the scope three emissions at SEA. And um, I really appreciate you uh, providing that figure on the jet A dispensed at SEA going all the way up to 2022 and showing that increase. But of course, our inventories always lag our current status and so but I I think it's very informative to see the uh, relative percent of the I love this new term LTO right Um, that uh, landing takeoff and operations the um, I'm, I'm just wondering you know the trajectory of the aircraft operations you know the slope of that line will matter a lot and which stops at 2019 do you, I would assume you have some estimates going forward regarding that and and the relative percentage of these other contributions so we can weigh our 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 efforts
4: yeah and I don't know if you're able to just go uh two slides back from this one yeah this one um we do have actually the twenty twenty emissions but um they drop pretty dramatically and then the twenty twenty one and twenty two too, we're 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 building that inventory now. So, we felt that this drop off, um, without an answer of that that growing, was maybe a deceiving slide to, to suggest that we were getting closer to meeting our goal. But in fact, it was a worldwide pandemic that that caused those emissions. But as you can see, that that yellow line um, is aircraft operations at our airport and. It is the driver behind these Scope 3 emissions. So um, the, the forecasts are that our aircraft operations are going to continue to grow. The, the data we have collected to date follows that trend. So when we do publish um, the, you know, the inventory up to date, um, you will see it pretty closely following the, the, same, the same trend that you saw the jet fuel in the, in the subsequent slide where it drops, but then it starts growing again. And the projections are that it will continue to grow and follow the U.S. pattern that you see also in the FAA slide.
7: And then if I could just follow up, the, at the same time, there is some diminution per aircraft due to technology and inv- investments. Correct,
4: yes. So there is some, some of that. Um, and we are seeing more efficient aircraft, um, actually. Just in the last year, we saw a pretty pretty uh, tremendous growth in our airlines um, um, turning over their fleet and, and bringing in a lot more efficient aircraft.
7: And so, but I also thought there was a trend towards larger planes on average, because like with ships, we have more, more TEUs with less vessels because of the size of individual vessels that's we're talking about more landings and takeoffs as well as potentially bigger planes?
4: Um, I can't speak to all of the trends and we probably need our operations team here to to fully describe this. But what we did see is um, prior to COVID, we saw more of the international flights sort of looking at where there were these large you know middle eastern hubs they would they would look at getting those larger aircraft but we actually see the the A380 which we don't even have at our airport but those really big jumbo jets they're actually they're they're stopping production of those and moving more to those mid-range mid or even for the larger international, it's, they're not these double-deckers anymore. So we're not seeing, actually, as much of that, um, the, the super jumbo planes. Um, but we probably need our operations team to speak further That's about right. um, the, the other specifics, yeah. Uh,
0: for the record, we've been joined in person by Commissioner Mohammed. She's been listening online to this point, so I'll turn to you and see if you have any questions for staff at this moment. Okay, so building off of Commissioner Feleman's questions, you know, the Biden administration's goals to be carbon neutral by 2050 demonstrate the need for SAF. I'm wondering where the other strategies that they identified, like um, new aircraft technology and operations improvement fit into our strategy to reach our goals at SEA. Um, well, we
4: are, we, we are sitting, we have many staff members that sit on committees about um, electrification. Um, and we have also participated in some national studies that are looking at hydrogen and what role airports might play um, as there are transitions to that. So we're actively following that, um, that area, but, and we have some studies, um, especially as we're looking at the Future growth of our electrical demand at the airport, we have factored in what kind of um, growth we might need to support some of the the smaller um, distance aircraft because we that same trend is showing that it's really you know by 2050 it will still only be sort of regional aircraft that are that are likely to be able to to transition to to electric. Um, so we are engaged in the space and um, you know following where where we need to be as airports to to be um, responsive to to those changes um but we haven't actively um you know start there we don't there are no commercial aircraft right now that are that are demanding those those fuels but we we are actively engaged in the space nationally and internationally
0: and then the scale of our of our need for um at sea in order to meet our own goals and the goals for um for our partners, is, would you say that it aligns with what's demonstrated on slide nine? From I the would. I, I would
4: say that that's that's, that's very accurate. Um, you know, the, we're dominated by narrow body national flights um, at our airport, along with international. So that that those trends um, are very much the way we'd we'd look at it here.
0: Thank you.
2: Great, thank you. Um, Chris, if you want to continue. So if we fast forward the slide deck, I think it's slide 15. There. Right, yes.
5: Thank you. Okay, thank you, Uh, no problem. Um, And thank you for those questions as well. So uh, currently when we look at our consumption that we've had, uh, we have been tracking that uh, both on the the government side and on the commercial side. And the, the on the government side, which you see there all the way back to 2007, uh, the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Navy, uh, they did a uh, did a couple of different projects and uh, did a couple of different uh, major uh, major technology um, uh, advancements, I guess you could say, uh, with the fisher tropes pathway, uh, the FT. That particular one was uh, was tested with the uh, with the Air Force. Uh, in a B fifty two, and then with the Navy with their Greek, Great Green Fleet uh, project uh, from twenty twelve to twenty sixteen, uh, we did a lot of uh, a lot of research and development, and and helped with the uh, the American Society of Testing and Materials uh, for them to be able to take that data that we were able to uh, to generate and use that for um, for. Qualifying more and certifying more more pathways uh, for that, and that's where we're now up to the uh, the, the actual uh, six or seven different uh, annexes at this point. Um, so when you when you see this, there is a there's a huge um, uptick uh, in 2022. You know we were we were uh, almost 15.8 million gallons at that point. Um, and we're definitely on track to exceed that in 2023. I think a lot of that is being helped by the, uh, the blender's tax credit is a part of the IRA in that, um, those, those producers that are out there are saying, Hey, you know what, I can, I can get a little bit extra money by selling the SAF," And so, um, so they're definitely on track for exceeding the 2022, uh, numbers at, at this point, um. And so when you look at it, yes, we, we definitely have World Energy, which is down in Paramount, California. But then we also have um, uh, Finland's Neste. Uh, they've sold a lot of, um, of SAF into the, uh, into the California and to the, to the U.S. Uh, domestic market as well, too. Um, and so we, we certainly are relying and we are tracking those particular imports as well. Uh, so the, this is actually the the m- amount of NEAT million gallons uh, per year that have been consumed. And NEAT million, that just NEAT means that was the, the sustainable the aviation fuel portion. So in the cases where it's mixed at a 30, 30 to 70 blend, that 30% is what we're tracking. We're not tracking the, the amount of fossil fuel that was m- blended with that in order to make the jet. We're actually only talking about the SAF portion uh, when we talk about the in 2022 the 15.8 million gallons that were actually um, consumed okay uh, next slide please okay so right now we know about um, some some production forecasts that uh, some of these are uh, all public announcements that have been that have been made um, and so you see that, you know, by the end of 2025, we hope to be almost at a, at a billion gallons of, uh, of actual capacity, production capacity. Um, and that is, you know, all domestic. And you can see all the, all the numbers there. Um, past that, it's kind of hard to tell, uh, even though there are some public announcements out there um, all the way. We normally track it at a, at a five-year scale. Um, so out to 2028, 20, um, the, the problem with that is that there's so much uh, flux in the amount of, of um, uh, you know, were they able to get financing? Uh, and so a lot of times um, we'll have companies that, that we, we put on this chart, but then we have to take them off because they're not able to, uh, to produce or not able to get financing or we're, we're constantly moving them from the left to the right um, as it says, oh, okay, so we're not able to produce in 2024, so we're gonna move it to 2025, uh, for instance. Um, so this is sort, of, sort of gives you a, uh, a snapshot. Um, so one, one billion gallons by 2025, and with a goal of three billion gallons by 2030, um, hopefully we'll be able to be there. Uh, one other point that I wanna point out on this is that this is production capacity um and so these these particular companies are able to produce at that level however um we also have to make sure that the airlines are purchasing the that fuel and as we talk about uh, in a later slide about the price of or the value of um, that that does certainly vary and uh, so it's a matter of the appetite for the airlines to be able to to purchase uh, all of this um, production capacity okay next slide please okay and so this is where we start to get into uh, to, to the price um, in in a lot of different cases as I mentioned to you we have uh, we have seven different annexes um, hefa the how to process esters and fatty acids uh, sorry for the long acronyms but uh, they're there um, though, so through that hefa SAF um, that right now is valued at around seven dollars a gallon that's without the policy support um, when you do gasification or power to liquids uh, and the Fisher tropes pathway you know it may be a little bit more uh, per ton of co2 that we're trying to uh, to abate uh, and then the alcohol to jet is another pathway uh, and that may cost a little bit more. Um, and so when you look at that across the board, you know, it could be anywhere from uh, two to eight to ten times higher than, uh, than traditional fossil jet. And it also depends on the feedstock. It depends on, you know, getting all of that, uh, all that feedstock to the, the biorefinery itself. Um, and so there's a lot of that that you have to play into with, with logistics. Um, I'll pause at this point to see if there are any questions on the on the price uh, related to this particular chart, and see if there's any any other uh, questions that you may have on on the price. Okay, I guess I guess um, there's none.
6: No, I've I've got a quick question for you. I'm really intrigued by. Okay. um so I've started to get involved in these conversations around power to X, and it's the first term, time I've, I've heard this sort of subset, power to liquids. And uh, I, I imagine the reason the band is so wide on this is because it's so dependent upon the cost of the input energy, in the, so whether it's wind or solar or some other form of renewable. Um, and so I want are, are we looking at sort of... Even in the best case scenario, that power to liquid uh, SAF is not ever going to be able to break below that bottom number. Uh,
5: I I I don't. I think that we will be able to. Uh, the problem with, that we have with that right now, Commissioner, is that um, it is still a very nascent industry. You know, overall for SAF. Um, we, we've only been around less than two decades um, and so we are still working on uh, the technology development and trying to make it more efficient um, yes the renewable energy piece certainly plays a, a big part of that uh, and some of these some of these companies that may be out there they may be saying okay well, we're just going to get our power from the grid well that doesn't necessarily help their carbon intensity score um, we want them to have as a low of a carbon intensity score as, as possible, and that's where some of them, like Gevo, are certainly um, working to incorporate both wind wind power and solar power into their process, so that they are uh, almost a net uh, negative carbon emission um, at the end of the, at the end of the day. That's what they what that's what they're shooting for. And a lot of these companies are actually shooting for that um, that at the end of the day, when you're, when you're going through the full life cycle, that after you put it into the jet and it, and it flies on that particular SAF, then you actually have less carbon um, through, the whole, through the whole life cycle of that. Um, yes, it may cost a little bit more initially, but I think that through time, these, these things will become uh, more and more efficient. Uh, when you compare this two decades-long industry compared to a 100-plus uh, fossil fuel industry, uh, it's, it's somewhat sometimes hard to compete uh, from that perspective.
6: Yeah, it reminds me of a quote I read last night that said it was about something totally different, but uh, I think it applies here, which is change happens very slowly and then all at once. And I think there is a... You know, there, there will be a tipping point in a lot of these technologies where all of a sudden this work that has been grindingly slow seems to just happen overnight. And I, I can see it happening with a couple of these pathways. I Also, I, I want to note that um, the last two weekends in northern Europe, uh, Wall Street Journal reported that the wholesale price of energy actually went negative. Um, and it's because they have brought so much renewables on that during this time of year when – there isn't really an air conditioning need or heating need, and there's a surplus of energy, and there's a lot of baseload they can't turn off, uh, certain you know nuclear facilities and other things. They're literally having to pay people to take electricity off the grid, and if there were mechanisms by which we could create storable forms of energy, like liquid, uh, that could be you know turned on when, effectively, the price of renewables or, or you know price of grid electricity. Is negative, then all of a sudden you create a financing mechanism that I think is quite positive. But again, we, you know, we're um, in Northern Europe. They they have uh, a forcing function in a, uh, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine that has really accelerated renewables expansion in that area, and so it's created that dynamic. Um, thankfully, we don't have that forcing function here. But I do think technologically, it's possible. And so I'm I'm very intrigued at the possibility of um, you know in, in that earlier chart where you showed all the red bars and then you showed that unlimited supply in the green bar of PTL. that I think there's real promise there, and we should be paying close attention to that.
5: Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, very good comment. And, and you're exactly right uh, on the energy storage side. Uh, yes, it could be batteries. It could be liquid. It could be a lot of different things. Uh, that you use for uh, for that storage of the of the energy and and that is where we want to be for sure uh, because we won't be able to use all of it if we have like they have in Europe you know in overproduction or, or over um, over overprodu- oh, yeah, overproduction of that of that uh, renewable power and that's okay that's not, no that's not a problem but it's a pro- it's a situation where you want to be in that's for sure Okay. Uh,
7: next slide, please.
0: Um, we've got some more questions here. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs>
7: sorry,
0: Commissioner Felleman.
7: Thank you very much. This has been great. Um, I had uh, two questions. One re- related to uh, the different uh, production coming online. Um, I keep on seeing Fulcrum being pushed further and further <laughs> to the right and was uh, wondering if you had any insight on, on that or if there are uh, any other uh, Producers that are looking at the uh, use of municipal solid waste
5: uh, Yes, sir, there are um, If we, we go back to the slide on, on production or yeah production, please um, Yes, sir that with uh, with with fulcrum they are actually uh, Producing now, but they're they're producing a, a crude uh, what they're getting out of it is a, is a crude oil that they're then taking to, um, a- actually taking to another refinery for refining into sustainable aviation fuel. Um, and so, uh, not in this chart, uh, but we do have, uh, because they were actually producing in uh, 2022, they're actually to the left, and then we're talking about the Sierra project in Nevada, The fulcrum that you see in 2025 is their center point project um, at 31 million gallons. That's the second one that they plan on opening up and that's in uh, the Chicago Metroland area.
7: Uh, Thank you. Are they the only company that's pursuing this? I I saw something in England that they were just, um, the federal government was providing some tax incentives. I thought it was for, specifically for municipal solid waste.
5: Right. Yes, sir. There, there are a number of other uh, companies uh, that are out there uh, looking at this. Lonza Tech is one of those. That's uh, it's in development with a uh, with a company down in Australia, and they're actually uh, uh, going to be using both municipal solid waste and construction and demolition waste uh, in order to uh, to use use those feedstocks. Um, this particular company is, a, is actually a construction company, and they've got a spinoff uh, to make this sustainable aviation fuel uh, from, that, from that waste product. Um, there's another one that we've been in touch with um, called Waste Fuels, and they are um, uh, in the process of developing a project in the Philippines uh, near, Man- near uh, Manila, um, where they will actually be um, using that municipal solid waste there. Uh, in America, yes, there are there are a few that have not um, not made any public announcements, but uh, but there are some other ones that are looking at municipal solid waste, sir.
7: Great, and just one question. So when you look at the total production going on here, um, so in order for the airlines to meet their, it's not really a COP twenty seven goal, right? They're not obligated by that, but I thought in Europe they have some actual obligation. How far away are we from what is forecast to be the need?
5: Uh, so um, what you're referring there to, sir, is uh, CORSIA. That's the carbon, um, carbon offsetting reduction scheme for international aviation. Um, and so all of the uh, countries, all the, the states that have said that they will abide by that, uh, right now it's in a voluntary stage. Um, but the mandatory phase will actually commence in 2027. And so um, any country that's doing any international aviation, and obviously Seattle uh, will be doing uh, a large portion of, of that um, going westward, um, they will certainly need to, to abide by that as well. Uh, so, uh, so, yeah, Corsia is one of those that uh, is certainly very, very prominent in, uh, in Europe, but it's also prominent uh, globally as well uh, which are also referring to in uh, in the eu they have a couple of different mandates uh, the re- refuel eu uh, mandate uh, is is out there and so a lot of the a lot of the airlines are being faced with if i don't use staff um, i have to i have to you know pay a uh, sort of like a penalty uh, per mile that they're that they're doing and so uh, that's where that is coming into play. Again, mandatory in 2027, but just voluntary at this point.
7: So, just so if you look at 2025, as you have in this forecast of production, and and this is just U.S. production, right? That's U.S. That is right. That's correct. U.S. Um, mm-hmm. And Nestle probably equals that unto itself or something like that. But the um, how far off are we for that 2027? Goal, I, and and is it ten percent? What is the what is that twenty twenty seven goal for in terms of percentage?
5: Um, the the percentage I believe is um, I have to go back and check, but I believe it's two percent um, in twenty twenty seven. But uh, but I, I'll have to look at that and, and get back to you, sir. Okay.
7: So um, does it even to achieve two percent? Do we have the production online to get there?
5: Um, well, uh, the three billion goal, three billion gallon goal that we have for 2030, uh, that's 10 percent of our total domestic uh, consumption, and that is both international and domestic flights. Uh, what the amount is of international community. Of that twenty, of that three, twenty-six billion gallons that's being consumed, um, of the total fossil jet, um, I would have to do some more research on finding out how much of that is actually the international perspective. But very good point, sir. Thank you,
0: Commissioner Mohammed.
8: I have a quick question. Um, you emphasized investing in procuring staff and how important that is for the airlines. Um, and that united Air airlines has uh invested in the infrastructure and the fuel in los angeles i'm wondering is the purchasing price of that fuel different for the other airlines operating there
5: no for, so for the uh for the other airlines that are operating there they're they're paying uh fossil jet prices so they're not paying any any premium at all it's only united that's paying the premium and they're also then the only ones that can claim that they're using uh, sustainable aviation fuel from LAX, even though it's going into the the same tank. And all all of the airlines will be uh, uplifting some uh, some of those molecules of of SAF.
8: That's helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Uh,
2: Chris, uh, you can continue. We have about um, six slides, uh, and we were then going to have another series of questions. Uh, we're a little behind uh, on, the, on our sure. agenda. That's fine. But Chris, if you could go through those last s- six of your part relatively quickly, we'll stop again for questions, and then we're going to move into uh, our uh, strategy of what we're actually uh, taking in terms of actions. Uh, thank you.
5: Yes, ma'am. Uh, yeah, so this particular slide uh, is is going to that point that was brought up before about uh, you know trucking the uh, the the wood the, the woody biomass and all of the different feedstocks from the different areas. Um, there's certainly a lot of feedstocks that are up in the Pacific Northwest. There's even a lot in up in Maine and and the uh, and in Northeast uh, certainly has a lot up there as well too. But then. Uh, getting that to uh, an airport that could use it like uh, like New York in the in the case with Maine you know you, then you'll certainly have uh, a part of that that you that you've got to got to worry about uh, the Lonza jet facility that's down in um, in Georgia uh, that is located about three hour drive from um, from Sopperton Georgia up to Atlanta um, which is a obviously a very major hub so uh, so, yes, you'd still have to truck it, but this this point of this slide is that, you know, the SAF is not produced uh, exactly where where you need it. They're not going to be producing it right next to the airport um, unless you're out in L.A. and they're producing in a Paramount and they've just put it in the pipeline. All right. Next slide, please. Okay. Um, the, the, the point here is that... Um, we have to make make sure that it meets all the jet a specifications uh as i mentioned to you before there are seven different annexes five of them are limited to a 50 50 blend and there's two that are limited only to a 10 percent blend uh, and that's just because of uh, some of the properties within that staff uh, that SAF that's being being produced Um, so at uh, at an airport or before an airport is where you have to blend Both your Jet A, your fossil, and your and your SAF together, Uh, and it it could be a a couple of different ways of doing that blending. But then they put it into the pipeline. It gets to the airport tank farm, and then to the to the wing of the plane. Um, We do have some pathways that have been identified, but not yet approved, for a fully synthetic SAF, so that they could use uh, 100% SAF with no fossil component whatsoever. Um, and that's sort of where we want to be in, for sure in 2050. Uh, we hope that the American Society of Testing and Materials Task Force that's now stood up for, for looking at that, hopefully they'll, they'll have uh, a pathway or two that's, uh, that's approved uh, in the next two, two possibly two, two or three years from now. Uh, so that's certainly going to help us to get uh, to get to our goals for sure. All right. Next slide. Okay. Um, so this is basically how we're um, how we're looking at our life cycle carbon emissions. When you uh, when you think about on the on the left how the, the normal fossil uh, industry works, uh, where you're extracting the, the, the crude oil, you're transporting it to a refinery. Um, then you're getting it uh, then you're transporting it to where you need to for your uh, for your airports uh, compared to the the staff uh, and that's more cyclical where you may be uh, growing some feedstocks uh, you're transporting it you're processing it and refining it getting it to the airport and then uh, out of the tailpipe of, a, of an aircraft certainly comes co2 that is than helping to to feed those uh, those feedstocks that you've been growing, and so when you look at the full life cycle, including all that transport and processing, et cetera, um, the life cycle greenhouse gas emission profile is si- significantly reduced from uh, from when you compare it to the petroleum-based uh, jet fuel. Okay, okay. next slide. Uh, and so we, we wanted to also show you, when I was mentioning, you know, anywhere from 50 to 80% reduction, uh, these are the different types of uh, part of those pathways. Uh, when you compare it to the very top there, the crude to conventional jet fuel, uh, that's where that's where we have to compare ourselves to. Uh, when you look at the, the total amount of life cycle greenhouse gas emissions, uh, your grams per CO2 Uh, equivalent for uh, per per megajoule that's that's basically how they're they're looking at that so you can see where in some of the cases we do have you know up to a um, you know 80% uh, reduction and then if we also then look at um, at cases where you're using that renewable energy then you could have even even greater and in some cases some of those are going to be claiming you know, an actual negative uh, greenhouse gas uh, reduction, which is a really good thing. I uh, also wanted to point out too, that um, SAF will burn cleaner, uh, which actually reduces uh, contrails at, at higher altitudes. Uh, sorry for the, uh, for the, um, uh, for the miss, misspelling there, but yeah, at higher altitudes, we, can, uh, we could actually reduce contrails. Okay, uh, next slide, please. Um, and then you know overall, when you look across the board at uh, at your SOx and your your, your uh, uh, particles that you're that you're trying trying to reduce, uh, obviously when you have a fifty percent blend, you're able to reduce it quite a bit. Uh, and then you also have the other uh, you know this the carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, and your and your NOx um, certainly has a, a play in it, but it's mainly the SOx and the particulate matter. That uh, that we're trying to reduce uh, overall with our with our staff. Okay, next slide, please. Okay, uh, so we CAFI have been working across the board with many people that have been enabling the the expansion of the of the SAF industry. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, certainly the airlines, business aviation, and then uh, even freight, uh, UPS, FedEx. Uh, they're also working. Uh, to purchase and, and and try to fund as, as much of the uh, expenses as they possibly can. Um, it certainly is a big part is, the, is a policy uh, aspect uh, from the international perspective all the way down to the state and regional uh, when you're looking at that across the board. Um, there are a number of different nonprofits and other coalition groups that are working, uh, like for instance, uh, Breakthrough Energy, is certainly out there as well which is nice um, and then some some producers and and even the airlines are actually um, help helping to to uh, expand that across the board they realize that there is a a huge demand and a very small supply so they know um, they know that they can fill it and for some of those producers that are out there um, you know, even though they may not have any steel in the ground as of yet, um, once, they do, once they do get some uh, some production going, everybody's going to get a contract. And that's, that's a beautiful thing, and that's what I tell all of the people out there producing now, is that there is no competition. We, we should have a lot of collaboration going on because everybody's going to get a contract, uh, you know, across the board. Okay, next slide, please okay so bottom line um you can you can read this i don't need to read it to you but uh i want to just point out that we do definitely there with a fourth major bullet point down we need more production quickly um and basically in order to get to our goals we need to double our production capacity each year in order to uh, in order to get there and part of that is going to be coming from the amount of policies that are there to helping to bring down that price um, and certainly there is some, uh, some, uh, capital expenditures that need to be put out there. Um, they are working on trying to reduce their operational expenses, uh, trying to make things more efficient, uh, and then of course incorporating renewable energy into that, uh, overall operation of their plants as well too. Okay. Next slide. And I believe we're open for questions at this point.
2: Yeah. First, I, I would love to just thank Chris uh, for joining us today uh, before we go into more questions and taking the time to, to give you this uh, holistic background of what's happening with sustainable aviation fuel. Uh, we, uh, the next section, uh, before we do questions, the next section of the presentation will be going into our collaboration, research, um, and policies, state and federal policies, on what we're doing to help with the production of SAF, but um, this would be a pause to to ask uh, Chris or the team any questions on what you've heard uh, up until now. Thank you.
0: Commissioner Calkins. Uh,
6: at risk of exciting the tinfoil hat crowd, uh, I am curious about the contrails impacts. Um, I think it was actually in Alaska Airlines uh, Document that I read at some point about their efforts to to reduce um, global warming that um, Mentioned that contrails might be uh, Up to 50% of of the cause of warming it's direct warming because it literally is creating more of a greenhouse effect and so and I know that the efforts initially were how do we um, Prevent planes from creating contrails because it's this perfect mixture of you know the emissions coming out of the tailpipe, but also the um, conditions in the air and so if you uh, deviate, uh, lower altitude, raise altitude, something you can usually uh, prevent them from happening or stop them from happening at the time. Uh, but what you're talking about here is potentially just a, a fuel that burns cleaner so it's not producing the particulate that that creates the droplets in the first place. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that and, and how much potential there is for that. And then the other question I have is, um, Thinking about, and I, this, this might get kicked to the next conversation, but as we're thinking about policy, I'm really curious to know how much potential there is for diversion, either domestically or internationally. If we take a very strong position around using SAF and a competing airport doesn't, are we going to lose uh, commercial viability because, hey, I can buy my jet fuel Cheaper there, and so therefore I'm going to choose a route there, or I'm not going to fill up, or I'm only going to fill up what I need, and so therefore we end up just sort of pushing the problem away, as we've you know we've seen on the maritime side with some of our environmental initiatives.
5: Um, so let me let me answer or uh, attempt to answer the question. Uh, the last one first, uh, and that is when when you're talking about competition, um, when you're talking about especially for international aviation. Um, think about the airports that are around you. Um, Vancouver uh, certainly is is one of those and I could tell you that British Columbia and Canada uh, writ large is working on sustainable aviation fuel initiatives also and they uh, uh, British Columbia does have a uh, low carbon fuel program uh, that certainly is very helpful. Um, and so they, they are not kicking it down the road or they're not saying, oh, yeah, we're not going to do that. Uh, they are actually taking that on, um, you know, firsthand. Um, and I think that most of the domestic airports are really looking at this uh, really hard. And they are they're, they're looking at it from the standpoint that you have to remember that the airlines are the ones ultimately paying for their jet fuel. And so they're the ones who are paying for the, for the SAF uh, in any, any Delta that may be there. Um, and they've all some, somewhat committed to that. Um, and the ones that you mentioned and we've mentioned already, United, Alaska, uh, Delta, American, all the major, major uh, airlines are actually um, saying and have already done some offtake agreements with some, some of the uh, technology providers that are out there. So I think that's certainly good. Uh, in relation to your uh, question about contrails, um, the, the amount of particulates coming out of the tailpipe certainly are the, the major part of that. And yes, if you have a synthetic hydrocarbon um, that you make is basically making from the ground up, um, they, are, uh, they are cleaner, and so they're cleaner burning, and so you would have less contrails. Can we eliminate them completely? Um, personally, I don't think so. It depends on the atmosphere that you're flying through. It depends on the altitude of the jet stream, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, eliminating them completely using SAF, um, no, I don't think that's. Um, and I, I don't want to be. I don't want to be wrong on that, but uh, it will reduce
7: it. Uh, go to zero? I don't think so.
0: Commissioner Feldman.
7: Thanks again. I'm. Um, I'm looking at the graphic on. Page hard to read. Uh, The one that shows the uh, life cycle of GHG reductions with SAF. The one with the red circle, yes. Uh, Two things of question. One is, uh, where is MSW? And the other one is, why is algae so intense? Um, I I don't know why MSW is
5: not on here unless I'm missing it, uh, the reason for the algae is that um, we know that when, when you are producing algae and the algae oil, um, the amount of, of actual crude uh, algae oil that you're getting per acre is quite high compared to an oil feedstock uh, like Camelina or, or Carinata. Uh, the problem that you get when you go to higher and higher scales, especially when you're looking at uh, pathways or um, the, the actual um, – the, uh, the, the pathways that, that they're growing the algae in, that's subject to uh, a lot of you know, pests, birds. Uh, and so you, you have to worry about those particular pathways becoming um, – uh, uh, j- just becoming – a, a a problem for uh, getting out all of the stuff that's that's going in there because it's stuff that may may fall out of the sky if you're talking about an open open pond pathway. Uh, in some cases, they're uh, they're using uh, plastic bags and they're using that. Uh, the other other problem with uh, with algae is you do have to have a CO two source uh, in order to help to the for the algae to grow. So in some cases, I saw in, in Japan, they're locating them next to a, a power plant, and they're using those power plant gases in order to feed the algae pond, and therefore grow some algae, uh, which is a good thing. But yes, it's a very, very wide range. You're exactly right. But it just depends on how they're how they're getting that algae oil.
7: I can't help but acknowledge the irony of needing the CO2 to produce the Ceph. But the... Um, the, the, so do you have any guess there about where MSW would fit into that curve?
4: I can speak um, to that briefly, just thinking yeah, about the, the carbon intensity score that I know that Fulcrum has applied when they, they've um, been putting in applications for their, um, their carbon intensity score for the low carbon fuel standard. Um, again, the, the process is, is, is an issue here. The, the more you can get all of the plastics out, Um, And any waste plastics that helps your carbon intensity score. So they have applied for I think a carbon intensity score that is in the 75 um, percent reduction range Um, and and I again every facility depending on how close the feedstock is whether they can get all the plastics out whether they you know where it all comes from impacts that score and how much transportation but from uh, my understanding of fulcrums application it's in that 75 percent reduction range. And I don't know, Chris, if you've got more to add to to those scores.
5: Yeah, that, that's. I think that's. I think that's correct um, for sure. And um, yeah, we'll we'll make sure we we uh, get uh, accurate data on this one um, for for future. But
7: thank you. So just just a lot. Of, I think probably our following conversation is going to be a lot about price and things like this. And the um, but the the what I understand is that in the course of producing sapphire producing renewable diesel, which is more of the profit center. And um, and that if there was a, uh, like a large uptake agreement that would, you know, to meet this demand that the diesel could help uh, get the net cost down, and I was just wondering um, how much uh, policies have been developed, how, many- how much airlines have been actually taking advantage of the policies that have been developed uh, as well as doing this combination of renewable diesel as well as SAF
2: so I might ask that we that's hold that one. question because right. I think we're going to start getting into questions related and to the next set I, of presentations I, I Commissioner
0: Muhammad. thank
8: you I have a quick question um this is one that I feel like often comes up the comprehensive analysis that's considered for the entire supply chain um is that Chris something that you guys are looking into or tracking what the transportation methods are when employing when employed um the the feedstock delivery what are the associated emission or environmental consideration that's given there
5: um certainly yeah we we uh, we're not necessarily tracking that but each individual company does does do that because they know that it's going to harm their particular um carbon intensity score uh so in a lot of cases with wood waste um and waste in waste and wood products um they want to they want to sort of Put their refinery in an area that is uh, where they're able to get to feedstocks and you know you sort of drawing a circle maybe it has about a 35 mile radius and so all of the different uh, wood comes from that particular circle as it were um, and so you, you also want to make sure you're close to a rail line so that you could uh, actually get some of that uh, some of that wood products Um, in via rail and then once you're once you're actually producing the fuel you're putting it on a rail car and you're shipping it out to uh, to an airport or to the um, to the pipeline somewhere so so that they do look at that yes
4: and commissioner mohammed one point of clarification is that that carbon intensity score that we talked about that is um that is the regulatory mechanism that the producers use to to generate the, the the financial credits and so that carbon intensity score um, methodology is set down in regulation, like in the low carbon fuel standard or in our clean fuel standard. So there is a whole auditing procedure for making sure that each each part of that carbon intensity score pathway is following that procedure and ensuring that that they can't qualify for those incentives until all of that is met.
0: And then I just have one quick question for Sandra, Stephanie, and Sarah. Um, I'm, if we're not, if part, if other airports aren't necessarily provi- providing SAF, then are our um, SAF use goals and our reductions calculations based upon, like, outgoing flights only because we're fueling up here at SEA? Yes.
4: Yeah, so the way that um, the, the calculations relate to the inventory that I showed at the very beginning of uh, our presentation, that's all based on, Um, emissions associated with our airport and fuel fueling uplifted here so if you fueled in Los Angeles and landed here on SAF it doesn't get counted in our score and we're actually working with an international group of airlines or airports sorry to talk about how airports are reflecting this in the inventories because again we don't own or control those emissions so we're talking about what the, the right pathway is or what the right methodology is to allocate and right now it's based on what what is fueled here
0: and to be able to share information with each other so that we really have a better idea of our emissions reductions for both outgoing and incoming flights. Um, okay, we've got a lot to get through and not a lot of time to get through.
2: <laughs> right. Thank you, Chris, for joining us. Thank today. you, Chris. Quite welcome.
5: And I'll, I'll be here, I'll just be in the background, but I'll listen in to the whole thing.
7: Thank you again.
4: All right, so next slide. So um, I will try as quickly as possible to review um, the port's role and the strategic plan. And as uh, Commissioner Hasegawa pointed out, we don't own or control these sources, so how do we, as an as an airport, play a role here? Um, and so, you know, given the supply and price issues that you've just heard about from Chris's presentation, you know, what what, what is our role? And just for a way of background for those commissioners who, who weren't here um, prior to 2015, really in the, in the early history of the, this airport we were parts of um, different groups that were studying this topic and saying, you know, we're interested in it. We have the benefit of airlines like Alaska who, who were early um, uh, partners in this and Boeing and others in our backyard. So we, we, we've started maybe in a role of saying, well, we really like this stuff. We want more of it, but what do we do? And so in 2015, we shifted more to, um, you know, really leaning into the economic development part of the port's mission to say, well, what could we do to shift to a market development role? Are there things that we can do that are that are more um, supportive and, and help bring more of this industry here to, the, to Washington State? Next slide. So as part of that, we started an exploration in, in 2015 of saying, well, what are the different Buckets of um, roles that the port within our regulatory authority, knowing we don't buy this fuel, we don't control any of this. What what can we do in the space that we occupy? And so, one of course is is looking at infrastructure integration, as um, Chris mentioned. You know, you you don't have the SAF coming from the same uh, sources as the refineries. So, how do we integrate it? Is there something we can do to help with storage, receiving, and blending? Then there's the incremental cost issue. Are there things, are there policies we can support to bring down the cost? Are there other, other innovative programs that we can help with? And then finally, um, attracting SAF production facilities to the state, that was really, well, is there some role we can um, play in, in, in helping to develop the industry here? And I'll talk a little bit more about that as I dive in. Next slide. So, as part of that, um, those major questions, those major buckets, we did some foundational research that really sort of kicked off in 2016. The first one being the, an an infrastructure feasibility study to look at how um, best to integrate any delivery of SAF and blending uh, into the pipeline so that it can get here as effectively and efficiently as possible. Um, that feasibility study was the first of its kind and has now been uh, duplicated or uh, copied in, at other airports because it sort of really set the tone for how, how an airport could, could help facilitate um, answering some of those questions. Then we also um, were part of a study looking at uh, innovative funding for, for SAF at U.S. airports. Um, we have um, more restrictions as FAA, um, f- you know, federal uh, regulated facilities and as also as a port. Um, that c- compared to, you know, maybe in Europe where you have a private airport, they can play a different financial role than we can. So we, we did some foundational work to understand within the limits of our authority what, what role can we play financially. Next slide. So that really led to, in 2018, the uh, adoption of the ports uh, SAF strategy that had four key, four key components. And what I'll do, for the, in the interest of time, I'll walk through the major updates in these four um, areas. I will point out we have a special deep dive into the policy side of things because I know that's where commissioners have been incredibly supportive and are also looking for more more information about what what else we can do in that space. So I'll quickly walk through those key components and then um, hand it over to the deep dive on, on policy. Next slide. So, in the space of cooperation and partnerships, um, also in 2018 was the foundation of the airline airport MOU group, and there there were uh, airlines who signed on to an MOU to look at um, what different strategies we could do to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and in, and reach those SAF goals that that you heard about at the the beginning of our um, presentation, and so with with that group um, we um, evaluated the ability to meet local and regional. Um, the fuel goals and find out, well, do we have enough feedstocks in the Pacific Northwest in this general region to meet the SAF goal of 10% um, and and increasing percentages? So we worked with WSU to do a a foundational study and look at um, what what we have available. And one of the findings of that study was um, that we have a significant amount of municipal solid waste in this region to actually just with that feedstock alone to meet the SAF goal that we have here at the airport. Um, and so, f- stemming out of that, um, with Commissioner Fellman's leadership, he approached the King County Solid Waste Division knowing that they have, um, issues with the imminent closure of the Cedar Hills Landfill to do a municipal solid waste to liquids, uh, techno, uh, economic feasibility study. And the results of that study will be, um, completed this year and we hope in the next coming months to be able to brief you on the findings of that study. Um. And then finally, another partnership that has, has evolved recently is the Cascadia Corridor where we have uh, signed an MOU with Portland Airport and Vancouver Airport. Because we, have, we actually receive um, refined jet fuel, fossil jet fuel from um, all of, a lot of similar facilities or same facilities, um, what, are there, what opportunities do we have with partnership and shared pipeline that we might be able to do around sustainable aviation fuel? So I'll have an update on that shortly. Next slide. Um, Before I dive much deeper into the sort of policy and some of the market mechanisms, one thing I just wanted to cover is this idea of the different mechanisms that we can use and that we have been pursuing to um, help look at what ways um, the the price gap can be addressed. So this um, representative barrel, is the, the fractions in it are not meant to be representative of specific values and policies, but to just give you a sense of it. Um, and so when we look at the total cost of SAF, that's what this entire barrel is representing. But the, um, the, the blue is just showing basically what the regular cost of jet fuel is or what an airline would typically pay for fuel. So what do we do to bring that, that cost down? What are, what are the different mechanisms? So we've definitely looked at policy incentives um, like the renewable um, uh, fuel standards or clean fuel standards, um, as well as supporting the federal blender's tax credit. Then there are other mechanisms that we we call corporate or airport contributions, which are separate from policy, but can be financial instruments that could be used to help bring down the cost. Those policy incentives that you see at the top, those are those are received by the fuel producer. So they they earn those credits, and then that can get translated into the final cost that they sell, sell to the airlines. But we don't have transparency necessarily into the exact amount that it results in in the final price, but we know that they use those mechanisms to reduce the, the final price. The corporate contributions and airport contributions I'll talk a little bit more about, but these are market mechanisms that, that look at the value to corporations, for example, who fly their, their employees on those airlines or might ship Um, products in the belly cargo of the airline and say, we would like those to be fueled on SAF. And so is there a market instrument we can use to incentivize to say we as a corporation would like to add to this, this, this pricing bucket and, and, and be able to buy down the, the emission contribution of those products um, or those, those passengers traveling. And then we've also looked at whether airports can also play a role in those market mechanisms and whether there are grants or things we can do with our federal partners to help um, incentivize. Now we know that in European private sector airports, they're able to directly fund SAF, but that is not something within our legal authority. Um, next slide. So um, we do have the deep dive on policy, but I did want to just talk a little bit about the landscape changes in policy that have happened since um, I last briefed the Commission in 2020. But what we really see, and um, Commissioner Felleman, you mentioned this, is that the EU, and actually Japan just announced it as well, is taking this mandate approach and basically saying we need... a uh, a supply blend of two percent by 2025, and then increasing that over time. So that's a regulatory mechanism that they're just saying this is what we this is what we want, and this is the mandate. The U.S. Um, in typical fashion has taken much more of an incentive approach, and we have states contributing to those incentives with so things like the low, car- low carbon fuel standard, as well as specific SAF incentive bills. And then the federal government, really, to, um, to match with their their SAF grand challenge to um, incentivize the 30 billion gallons that the, – sorry, the 3 billion gallons that we need, um, they have introduced the blender's tax credit as well as things to help production. So a lot of the incentives here are, are – um, they really have to be stacked together in order to bring those prices down, but they're focused on both um, production and use. And we'll dive deeper into that momentarily. Next slide. Then the update in the market development side, and this is what I was speaking about with, with um, corporations being um, contributing, is that what we've really seen, and in fact at our last um, SAF study session, we had um, th- uh, an announcement from Microsoft that they were the first to develop a, a mechanism to buy a SAF certificate. And um, that is a contractual instrument where an airline can, b- can basically buy SAF seats or you know, SAF, uh, SAF flown um, cargo. And since that time, what we've really seen is that there have been um, a formalization of the methodology and the what we call the book and claim approach, so that those SAF benefits that the airline is contributing to and, and, and helping to pay for that, that SAF, that they're able for that to be reflected in their... In their accounting books, that the greenhouse gas accounting that like companies like PricewaterhouseCoopers have now you know put their stamp on it and said those are instruments that we recognize and that that is helping to reduce the the footprint of you as a company for your scope three emissions. Now because it's a global air pollutant, um, it 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 uses a book and claim approach. An air uh, a corporation like Microsoft they might not necessarily have flyers on that exact aircraft. Um, and so in the same way that we talked about that if it gets uplifted at LAX and it might get used by multiple airlines, it is still that that um, that contributor because it's a global pollutant, that corporation is able to book and claim it and it's able to be tracked contractually so that no one else is, is double counting it or claiming it. So there's a whole procedure now, a manual about how to do this um, that has evolved really in the last three years because um, it's there's a lot of interest in the corporate sector for this. Um, Commissioner Mohammed, <laughs>
8: Who audits that man, uh, that manual or what's the process in place to make um,
4: sure? Well, the, the, the manual right now is setting out what the terms are, but the audit is companies like the Coopers who do the, the evaluation of, of their, the, the books, um, so to speak, of any corporation. So it isn't a regulatory mechanism that has an audit function from government. It is more of an audit function within the, the, the claims system of, of greenhouse gases. Um, Next slide. And then finally on outreach and education, I don't need to dive into it too much, but the focus really for us um, over the last three or four years has been on educating legislators and why um, the SAF price difference is what it is. What the challenges are with renewable diesel production and the the price difference to to incentivize that versus SAF, and really working um, with with that portion of our education and outreach. But I did want to let the commission know that we also um, Seattle Airport has been recognized nationally and globally um in our leadership for the the types of research pr- projects that we've done and we um are an advisor to the SAF grand challenge the biden administration's grand challenge um, they sought our advice in terms especially as it relates to infrastructure integration and we're also a participant on worldwide SAF initiatives um including eu funded um projects where they are there they would like our um Uh, feedback and leadership in this space because of all the foundational research that's really been conducted here. Next slide. So the next steps before we dive into the policy deep dive um, on those strategies that I've just um, discussed um, prior is that um, that joint Cascadia airports group that I spoke about with with Portland and Vancouver airport, um, we're really looking as our next step that we want to talk about what strategic blending and storage facility locations we might have again because we have a shared pipeline and one major refiner that also delivers the majority of our fuel to all three airports is that is there an opportunity to look at a strategic facility that all three of our airports could use um, or that is connected to the, the the supply chain of all of our airports and the faa assent um program actually has money um, that we, we have just applied for in conjunction with WSU to help um, see if we can get, get that launched. Um, we're also then, as I mentioned, publishing the MSW to fuel study, and then we continue to evaluate those innovative concepts um, that, that we're looking at, these market-based mechanisms to reduce the incremental cost and increase the availability um, at our airports. So I'll pause there before we do the, the deep dive into policy to see if there are any, any questions.
7: Thanks so much, Stephanie. And really, our credit for being leaders has much to do with your work. So really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and and so I, I just wanted to go back to that graphic, the barrel. Um,
4: the famous barrel. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, but the, the footnote
7: says illustrative, not specific to any particular policy or price. But is it proportionate?
3: You know,
4: it it, it isn't quite proportionate because that the green fraction, as we mentioned in, in chris 's presentation, that green fraction is much smaller for a heffa based fuel uh. than it is for if it was powered to liquids that that it would go off the piece of the paper frankly because it it would be such a huge price differential and so that that in that in, in a sense is already where there's some distortion in what it might be and then you know for heffa uh, based fuel so again those are the 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 um, Lipids or the the waste uh, cooking oil, those sorts of things, just to clarify what what we mean by hefa, they're oil-based, and they they use the same um, biochemical, or sorry, the chemical pathway of of regular uh, refineries. That price gap is lower, and so therefore the policy incentives like RINs, Low Carbon Fuel Standard Blender's Tax Credit actually take up the majority of that fraction. You don't need as much contribution from those other sources when you're using those lower priced HEFA-based SAF. But as soon as you change the, the type of pathway um, and the technologies are more nascent, the higher that price gets and the more you you need to look at other mechanisms to fill that, that green barrel.
7: Okay, so just getting staying on the price issue, I'm very excited to hear more about that Cascade corridor. It seems really like a really clever thing. And, and BP wasn't specifically called out in the producers of thing, although I think they're an investor in Fulcrum. But the um, the idea that they've announced some potentially large additional production capability at Cherry Point is an interesting component to that conversation. But one thing that wasn't mentioned is in terms of you know when you buy in bulk, you get a price challenge. You get your it's always Cheaper to buy if going to Costco, so um, so the Costco of 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 Saf is what we want to find. So yeah. these large uptake agreements, I would assume, are you know one of the ways that the airlines can certainly buy down their cost. And then the question about for the refiners, and I do appreciate your point that whether they pass on the savings or not is obviously proving not to be the case with in the state right now. But um, the the production of renewable diesel and that profit margin. Can you just kind of give an idea that I understand is like cheaper to produce renewable diesel than conventional, and so they're making money on this side if we just look at their overall profit picture?
4: Can yeah, you- just very briefly, the the especially this HEFA pathway, the – the sort of first step in the refining process basically gives you renewable diesel. So it's less energy intensive and it's sort of the, the, the default, you could say, to make renewable diesel in when you're making um, f- renewable fuels from HEFA. So it's an additional input process, it's additional effort, it's additional cost to, to transform that renewable diesel into SAF. So there's already a bit of an energy and cost penalty to do that. And there's also some on-road incentives related to renewable diesel that when you're using that, particularly in California, that that drive the producers to say, well, if I can make more money selling it as renewable diesel, I'm just going to do that. I'm not going to take the step to turn it and convert it into SAF. And so the Blender's tax credit federally has been a, a big part of the step to bringing that differential down. And so for those HEFA-based fuels, that Blender's tax credit has done a lot to, to bring that margin down and, and incentivize those producers to actually make SAF instead of renewable diesel.
6: Just a quick follow-up on that. Uh, one of the notes I had was about refinery retooling and I'm um, <laughs> sorry to eat up into the policy discussion, but uh, I, I know that in the modeling of our um, total consumption of like gasoline in the state that the state isn't getting as much. Uh, revenue from gas tax because we're burning less gasoline and that was even before the significant increase in the number of uh, electric vehicles. It was based on cafe standards and other things. It was just making cars more efficient. Now I read that 12% of all cars bought in the world last year, new cars bought were electric and that far surpassed anybody's estimate even a couple of years ago. So as we see this sort of really steep Uh, adoption of um, non-ICE vehicles, and these refineries that are all set up to support that market are now looking for new products to produce. Is there a potential upside for SAF, and are you seeing that in any discussions? That
4: is an uh, excellent point and super observant, and in fact, when the FAA modeled the different scenarios for the future Um, in the graph that I showed you uh, earlier, they actually modeled high and low scenarios for how much electrification would be happening in the the ground transportation sector and what that impact could be for more SAF production. Um, so we, we hope and anticipate that as there's less demand for that, you could actually move more of that fraction. There's less demand for on-road fuels that you can move some of those feedstocks and, and um, some of that use into the harder-to-abate sectors like marine and aviation. So for those
6: who want to do something for SAF today, go buy an electric bike <laughs> Excellent.
4: All right, and with that, if we can um, advance the slides, it's uh, now time for our policy deep dive. So we'll um, move first to the federal policy um, with Eric Schinfeld.
9: All right, well, good morning, commissioners. Happy to be here. I will go very quickly so you can hear from executive director Fitch as much as possible. Uh, the, The short version of this story is that we have made incredible, incredible progress at the federal level. It's fantastic news. Lots still to do, but the amount of momentum, as sort of Commissioner Calkins referenced earlier, you know, that, that feeling that we're starting to get to a tipping point is really uh, felt at the federal level. I uh, want to highlight a couple of recent wins and then a couple of things that we're still working on. Uh, so two major parts of the Inflation Reduction Act, which was passed last year. The first, as Stephanie has mentioned a few times, is the SAF Blender's tax credit. Uh, so that is uh, right now a twenty-five per gallon for each gallon of SAF that is uh, at least a fifty percent uh, reduction in, in greenhouse gases and then an additional penny for each percentage up to a dollar seventy five, right? So you're at a dollar twenty-five for fifty percent, you're at a dollar fifty for 75%, seventy-five percent, and a dollar seventy five for hundred percent. I just did that math Uh, on my own right there, Uh, so very (laughs) exciting. Uh, That SAF Blender's tax credit is not yet fully implemented. Uh, Right now, the US Treasury Department is doing its rulemaking process. And so one of the things I wanted to call out is uh, a lot of efforts that we've been involved in with the larger National SAF Coalition uh, to get our members of Congress involved, to uh, communicate directly to Treasury uh, around exactly how to implement this provision. Uh, One of the most important things is how do you measure the greenhouse gas reduction, right? Uh, and so uh, I will not go into detail on the difference between Corsia and GREET. Uh, I honestly don't know the difference, but I can tell you that we want GREET uh, and not just Corsia. So uh, we're working very hard on that. Next slide. There you go. <laughs> uh, the other provision in the Inflation Reduction Act was this uh, SAF, uh, FAST SAF grant program. Fueling Aviation, Sustainable Transition via Sustainable Aviation Fuels. Uh, so that's $300 million. Uh, it's really divided into two buckets. One is for specifically SAF production, transportation, blending, and storage. The other is is technically for the development of low-emission aviation technologies, so it could be broader than SAF. We have heard very clearly from FAA that that will probably be used mostly for SAF. So it really is $300 million for SAF. Uh, we are, uh, we did... Uh, track this. It is looking like, I thought it was going to be this fall, it's looking like it will be the beginning of next year at this point, because they, again, are still doing that program development and and, uh, rulemaking process for exactly how that grant will go out. So we will be ready. Uh, I will tell you that it will probably, the first application will probably not be from us. Uh, because we don't have any SAF projects on site, most likely, although who knows what will happen next. Uh, Most likely we will be supporting our partners in the private sector as they apply for funding, uh, like our friends, for example, at Sky Energy uh, to get some of these dollars to support SEA. Next slide. Uh, So right now, uh, as as you know, last Friday the House and Senate both, both introduced uh, the uh, their versions of the FAA reauthorization bill. Uh, and I was very, very disappointed that neither the House or the Senate bills contained anything about sustainable aviation fuels. Really surprising, to be perfectly honest, particularly on the Senate side where Chair Cantwell is writing the bill. Uh, and, and that is really, uh, again, disappointingly, because of partisan uh, opposition to SAF. Uh, I really believed, I really hoped that because Airlines were really pushing for SAF, and this is really an industry push, uh, that this would be a bipartisan issue and has not been so far. And so uh, we, are, we are not seeing that bipartisan support, and therefore it has uh, currently been kept out of the House and Senate FAA bills. Uh, this Thursday is the Senate Commerce Committee markup of the Senate version. Chair Cantwell herself will be offering an amendment on SAF uh, and so uh, we're working very hard with our national coalition to get bipartisan support for that amendment. It would do a number of things, uh, increasing the authorization for this SAF, this FAST SAF program, uh, extending the, the blender's tax credit to 10 years. And it uh, would also uh, mandate that GREET is used by the uh, U.S. Department of Treasury, again, whatever that is. Uh, I did want to say uh, on that second bullet of 10 years, so the way the Inflation Reduction Act uh, instituted the, the SAF Blender's Tax Credit is there is a SAF Blender's Tax Credit for just two years, and then it transitions into the overall Clean Fuels Tax Credit, which uh, Chairman Wyden, the, the Senate Chair of Finance, really felt strongly about, that all of the tax credits should be fuel neutral, Uh, and we appreciate that in theory, but in practice, SAF is so far behind all of the other alternative fuels that we really believe that we really need that 10-year pathway to catch up. And then, great, put it into the Clean uh, Fuel Tax Credit. Uh, We can compete equally, but, you know, we we need that sort of extra advantage now for the next 10 years. Uh, Again, right now it's two, so next slide. Uh, Two other bills that are being considered this year besides the FAA bill uh, is, of course, the FY24 appropriations bills. Uh, We have two asks uh, as part of that uh, additional funding for the Bioenergy Technologies Office, Beto. Uh, and the FAA's uh, next year Environmental Research, Aircraft Technologies, and Fuels Fund. Uh, and just as exciting, if not more exciting, it's also the Farm Bill year. Uh, and Farm Bill is really an underutilized resource as it relates to SAF, uh, obviously particularly on the feedstock side of things, but also because uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture actually has significant biorefinery loan and loan guarantee programs. Uh, so two things that we're pushing as part of our national coalition. One is to uh, expand the biorefinery assistance programs to SAF refineries uh, and to change some of those loans into direct grants, Uh, and then to authorize a new USDA Farm to Fly Center uh, with a focus on SAF development and commercialization. So uh, Farm Bill is much further behind than FAA Bill, but we'll be continuing to track this uh, as we go into the next few months. And then next slide, final slide here. Uh, So many of you know that last year in the National Defense Authorization Act, we worked with uh, then Chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, now Ranking Member Adam Smith to uh, institute a provision in last year's NDA that directs the Secretary of Defense to identify two bases for uh, development of a sustainable aviation fuel plan. Uh, One of those facilities needs to be a facility with an onsite refinery located in proximity to a major commercial airport that is also actively seeking to increase the use of sustainable aviation fuel. So fingers crossed uh, that that would be joint base Lewis-McChord near Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. Uh, Right now, we're working very closely with Representative Smith and Representative Strickland uh, and other members of our congressional delegation to work with DOD to really uh, help shape what their process process is like to identify what those two bases are. And also working directly with JBLM uh, in terms of helping to help them understand what this would be uh, so they understand how it could fit into their overall plans. Uh, And those are the federal updates.
10: Thanks, Eric. I think we'll go to my brief remarks before final questions and, Michelle, if you can advance the slide uh, two. I'll start with the how we got here. I'm going to endeavor to be as rapid as Eric without speaking as fast as he did. Um, I'm Eric Fitch. I'm the executive director at the Washington Public Ports Association, uh, part of the coalition that helped bring Senate Bill 5447 through to passage. Uh, And I'm speaking here on behalf of of not just WPPA, but on on behalf of hopefully our coalition members who did help contribute to the um, preparation of this slide. Partly because I get nostalgic whenever I walk into Pier 69, we're going to start with a bit of a look back in time. Uh, Really, I want to emphasize here the role of the Sustainable Aviation Biofuels Work Group. It was a small line item in the state budget for several years, but it played a big role in promoting uh, legislative changes that would help to to incent the deployment of sustainable aviation fuel in Washington. Uh, In 2018, the recommendation from that group was that a low-carbon fuel standard was the, the most important policy mechanism that could be put in place. Because of that, Port of Seattle started pushing aggressively for LCFS, making sure that it had the aviation opt-in, which the bill did when it was finally adopted in 2021. Um, When LCFS was adopted in 2021, we turned our attention to rulemaking, and this is significant because we asked the the State Department of Ecology to do a few things in rulemaking with a coalition of other interested SAF entities, which they didn't do. Um, so those two, notably, which have been referenced here before, were to um, require a pathway within the low-carbon fuel standard that would allow SAF to, to earn credits. The, the initial rule from Ecology did not have that pathway, hence SAF couldn't earn credits until 2025, thereby delaying the, the price impacts that, that we were hoping the LCFS would have. The other was the eligibility for biomethane or renewable diesel to be considered a feedstock. The reason I n- note our failure in that is that we um, turned the the rulemaking challenges into part of the legislation that ended up being brought forward. The other thing that happened was in fall of 2022, the Sustainable Aviation Biofuels Work Group recommended to the legislature a number of tax preferences that could be put in place to speed the deployment of SAF. at that time, we, t- we met with Amazon, Stephanie, mine, and I when I was still at the Port of Seattle, and a number of other future coalition partners to contemplate a bill that would require Department of Ecology to study what incentives could be put in place. But luckily, Senator Billig, from Spokane, who represents Spokane Airport and is also conveniently the Senate Majority Leader, said, why would we study what incentives to put in place when we could just run a bill putting incentives in place? It was his leadership and his willingness to, to push the envelope that, that really helped lend momentum to this effort. Um, so, Michelle, if you'll advance the slide, I wanna talk now about the um, important elements of Senate Bill 5447. There were two B&O tax preferences, one was a preference for manufacturing and wholesale of SAF, the other is a credit for purchase and uh, sale. So notably, um, just as Eric described, the sliding scale of the purchase and sale tax credit, um, for 50% cleaner SAF, you get a dollar, for 100% cleaner SAF, you get $2. So the idea is that that for better carbon intensity of product, you get a greater incentive and hopefully that will will help expand the benefits that that folks see from this also key to note um the bill requires that a 20 million that 20 million gallons of in-state production occur before you can get a credit for purchase and sale so the, the focus of the legislation that we WPPA, port of seattle and other coalition members supported was on development um, and, and the employment that the, and economic development that that brings to communities, the, the benefit for use of SAF comes later once we have production in place. Um, the Tier 1 pathway that I mentioned earlier requiring ecology to make SAF a Tier 1 pathway was also in the legislation, and the legislation requires biomethane to be considered as an eligible feedstock. Um, the bill included a multiplier, um, Stephanie made reference, I think as did Eric, to the uh, obvious fact that renewable diesel is easier to produce and earns a credit under the under the low carbon fuel standard that's equal to the credit earned by SAF. So why would you produce SAF instead of renewable diesel? Uh, we put language in the bill that would have given a multiplier to SAF and hence incented for the SAF production alongside renewable diesel to try to make back some of the um, the gains that we, we see we need. Uh, that, that element was removed, it was somewhat controversial, um, namely because you had to amend the low carbon fuel standard statute in order to put that multiplier in place, which several environmental groups were concerned about. Uh, I put members of the coalition up here because, as you know, when I worked for the Port of Seattle, my motto was, nobody cares what the Port of Seattle thinks, meaning we don't do anything without our partners. Partners uh, At WPBA, I have a bit of a different motto now, but um, <laughs> uh, because I care what the Port of Seattle thinks. But um, you, you do see here a really wide variety of supporters. The aviation industry, Alaska and Delta, always as leaders. Boeing joining them, Spokane Airport's not listed on here, but they were a critical member, Um, the fuel producers, Sky Energy and Neste, and then importantly, our partners at Labor, the Washington State Labor Council, the building and construction trades, all joined in. So uh, Michelle, I'll I'll do my last slide here and we can skip the next steps if you advance it one more. Um, The bill was well received. It was bipartisan, as Eric said. There was hope that the federal government would take the same bipartisan approach. They may not have, but the state did. We had Republican senators joining Democratic senators on the sponsorship line for Senate Bill 5447. The environmental community was hesitant. As I said, they were concerned about the multiplier. So you can see on this slide the progression that that the bill took. Ooh, uh, sorry, Michelle, you go back back one slide. Um, The bill was introduced in the Senate and the multiplier was removed by amendment um, at the Senate committee. On the Senate floor, there was an amendment added to the bill to address environmental justice concerns requiring UW and Wazoo to study the ultrafine particulate emissions reductions in communities around Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. Uh, When the bill got to the House, there was a concern raised by a tribe in northwest Washington about potential development on tribal lands. And so there was an amendment included to address those concerns. And with those amendments, the bill passed 46-2 out of the Senate and 96-0 out of the House. And it was signed on May 3rd with Commissioner Muhammad in attendance representing ports in support of the bill. Um, So the the last slide and where I can conclude just just notes as as everyone here has, there's quite a bit more that needs to be done. I'd say the most important thing on this slide is that we need to site facilities in Washington where we can develop SAF in-state. That's going to require some potential changes to how we permit big projects in the state and that's something Port of Seattle, WPPA and other coalition members. Um, we're out in front on during Olympia legislative session because the one cannot happen without the other. So, with that, I'll conclude and happy to take questions. Thank you. Yeah,
6: questions for the commissioners. Commissioner Calkins. Uh, this is a quick one for uh, Schinfeld, actually. Excuse me. Eric Schinfeld. That's <laughs> too easy for two Eric. Uh, in the Farm Bill, does forestry qualify as? Farm, would it would it benefit yes. from these things yes. so Farce just thinking yes. sort of Absolutely. parochially for Washington state i know that you know we have significant uh, opportunities there if it would qualify so and uh, i had a question about blender's tax credit expiration but i think you answered it so if it in either case there is no expiration on the new clean fuels Tax program,
9: right? Well, all tax credits expire at the federal level and have to be renewed at the end of that 10 year period, but oh. it would be more institutionalized and more of a sort of just a normal thing to do uh, as, you know, as the existing tax credits for, for example, renewable fuels uh, continue to do. So, uh, you know, I will say, If we only have two years of a dedicated SAF Blender's tax credit, it will still help, right? So we shouldn't just cry. But uh, I do think that, uh, obviously, like I said, we we do want that extra bump to help the industry fully develop and mature.
3: Thank you.
4: And I'll just add to that that when you look at that um, timeline for production facilities that you saw in Chris's presentation, for producers to feel confident that there's going to be a tax credit when they, when they get to the final, you know, the, the, all the permitting and, and development and, and capital investment is done, you really do need a, a stronger, longer-term signal, and um, that's a, definitely a concern we've heard from the industry. And it's, it's part of uh, why we also involve you commissioners in, in helping to support and, and advocate for policies that really um, help the industry long-term. Well, and if
6: if we've chosen a incentive versus mandate approach, then our incentive's better because mandates, you know, once that stuff's built, it's built. They don't; it's, it's not subject to expiration like an incentive is. And so, if we're going to go this way, we really need to make it certain for those investors.
0: Commissioner Mohammed,
8: thank you both for the presentation. I, um, Eric, I think you you always underscore the fact that it is so important for us to be collaborating with our federal agencies. Could you maybe speak to um, our conversation and our intent to align with the Department of Transportation as well?
9: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Commissioner. So Stephanie mentioned earlier the SAF Grand Challenge, uh, and this is the Biden administration's whole of government approach. And it's really exciting because as we know, as we've been saying for years, Uh, It is obviously the Department of Transportation. It's obviously the Department of Energy, the Department of Agriculture. We know it's DOD, and that's why we've been pushing through the National Defense Authorization Act, et cetera, et cetera. And so they really are trying to align better. Uh, I want to give a quick shout-out to Representative Del Bene, for example, who has a bill to create a Joint Office of Energy and Transportation to specifically look at alternative fuels for both maritime and aviation, and that's really important. Uh, So I, I think we are aligned. I think we're very lucky that the Biden administration shares our values. AS IT RELATES TO SAF AND and HAS BEEN ABLE TO MOSTLY THROUGH THE INFLATION REDUCTION ACT REALLY START TO PUT IN PLACE THOSE POLICIES THAT COULD BE SUPPORTIVE. Uh, AND and I THINK EVEN BEYOND THE POLICY PIECE, THAT BULLY PULPIT AND THAT uh, ABILITY TO BRING THE PRIVATE SECTOR INTO THE MIX AND HAVE THESE CONVERSATIONS, uh, AGAIN, AS I STARTED WITH, REALLY ELEVATES THE CONVERSATION ABOUT SAF TO A POINT THAT I THINK IS REALLY, REALLY HELPFUL FOR EVERYONE.
0: COMMISSIONER FELLMAN.
7: I have a question for Executive Fitch. What's with the picture of the Port of Tacoma on the
0: cover?
10: Uh, you're the first. Well, you're not the first to spot that. You're the first to I you chastise based me in publicly. Olympia. Based in Olympia, it's it's Port of it's Tacoma's the South tie, Harbor. It's of the Seaport yeah. Alliance. It's uh-huh. also South. tied for my top seventy-five favorite port districts in the states. So.
7: <laughs> All right, just. Uh, for the record. Actually, I, I was interested in, I have a couple questions. Is The, the um, question about evaluating the impacts of ultra fines, that's a challenging question. I was wondering, perhaps, Stephanie, you had some insight with, with the legislation requiring this amendment to evaluate it. How are we going to go about doing that?
4: Uh, well, two universities um, are named as helping to do that work, both uh, University of Washington and Washington State University, um, with the power of the entire FAA Ascent Research community behind them, um, will be tasked with that that challenge. But um, there has been a lot of research being done at, at the federal and international levels to look at what the ultrafine particulate reductions are, depending on what is happening in the engine thrust conditions of the aircraft, depending on what phase of, of landing or, or takeoff it's in, as well as um, what percentage of SAF is, is in the engine at that time. Um, it will be challenging to do that for anything landing here, of course, but the focus, I think, will be that we will give any um, data on SAF that's uploaded here um, at CTAC. And give that information to, to those universities to work on that. But they'll be using the latest science um, and that, that is that is out there that is measuring those those impacts at the at the engine or uh, engine exhaust level um, of the aircraft. So so let me
7: gonna, just sorry. We're going to compile the science rather than do it. We're not doing experiments.
4: They're going to be doing the calculations based on the existing science. Okay.
9: Just really quickly, I want to call out that Representative Smith has a bill that would require a federal study of UFPs and specifically looking at uh, UFPs related to SAF. Uh, That legislation did make it into the House version of the FAA bill, and so we're hopeful that will become law as well.
7: Great, because I know there's a lot of interest in that. I also was wondering whether this Everett Center at Payne Field, this was something that came out of the blue. I don't know. Do you have any background on are they going to be involved with something like this? Or... Uh, that,
4: that center is is focused a lot on the the qualifications, the, the chemical qualifications, the ASTM standard of of fuels. So it's going to be very much it's an extension of uh, one of the major researchers at at WSU, um, and I think it's also in partnership with PNNL um, to to establish that facility um, at Payne Field. So it is it is more focused on um, testing and qualification of fuels than it is. Um, broader than that from my understanding if anyone would like to add more to their understanding so that's that's my my knowledge about that that facility at Payne. it's very much focused on fuel testing
7: okay so the last thing is so there's eric just mentioned a couple of very quickly moving uh pieces of legislation that at the federal level that might need our our attention that i love the farm to fly center that's a whole new Term of art for me, but but the obviously the the Cantwell amendment for this week 's markup of the commerce, so that that seems pretty uh, pretty pressing i don 't know whether we have entailed, have engendered our coalition to weigh in on that
9: yes we, we have we actually had a, a really great call yesterday with staff from Senator Cantwell and Senator Warnock's offices. Uh, The the challenge, again, is uh, because in the Senate this bill has to pass with 60 votes, uh, they really don't want it to be a partisan amendment. Uh, Unfortunately, the ranking member of Senate Commerce, uh, Senator Ted Cruz, uh, is not only opposed to SAF but also opposed to any policies related to reducing aircraft emissions. So uh, we are talking to some other Republicans on the committee who are from farm states who benefit from the RFS uh, and hoping to get their support.
7: I would think that would be a natural alliance. And then I, I guess we also have whatever the um, implementation of the the rulemaking for the lender's tax credit and then the decision-making process for the DOD pilot project. And so do you have any other idea what time frames we're talking about here? Is? So I, I think that
9: the The Treasury guidance on the SAF Blender's Tax Credit should be this year. Uh, Like I said, I I think I got an update yesterday that the grant program for SAF uh, through DOT will probably be beginning of next year. Uh, we, we do believe that the DOD will put something in place this year. We just had a call with Adam Smith's office again, uh, and they are, they're trying to determine that. It is uh, so many things in the NDAA and so many things going on, particularly with Ukraine, that this has not been the top of their priority list. Uh, but we are trying to make sure that once they get to it, they really do uh, consider our feedback and, and look at this region uh, because, again, the whole point of that uh, NDAA provision is that we need to create that regional demand signal. And uh, CTAC alone is pretty good, but CTAC and McCord would be really good. Thank you very much, and all your work on that.
0: Well, thank you so much. I don't think any of this would be possible without your subject matter expertise, your creativity, um, at I just your advocacy. I recognize the hard work that you've all put in, including on weekends and weeknights, in order to bring us to where we are today. And, um, you know, we are your, you know, your partners in helping see this through for the benefit of not just our local businesses, our community members, our environment, all of us are stakeholders in this. So, thank you so much for this tremendous presentation. Without any further questions or comments from my colleagues, we are at the end of our morning study session. So, Executive Director Metric, do you have anything else before we close up?
1: Thanks, Commissioners, for, um, uh, for just your attention and all your questions on this, and especially thanks to the staff and uh executive director fitch for coming uh here and for giving us this update on uh, as you can tell we're working across all the different avenues to approach this and advance this important work for us and appreciate your focus on this and your um and your um drive on this uh, to drive us forward so thank you
0: we appreciate you director metric and with that we are adjourned the time is 11.05 thank you everyone for the discussion today